that our brain has a really well-worn pathway to manage uncomfortable feelings. Our brain is really good at learning. It's really good at remembering, which is the function of dopamine to remember what feels good in the short term. But also it doesn't want to expend a lot of energy thinking about new solutions. So the brain is highly motivated to repeat patterns that give us short-term reward. And so when we experience emotional hunger and we have this well-worn pathway of something that is accessible to us and doesn't immediately have any consequences, it becomes an easy choice to make and a hard one to not make until you do exactly what you've done, which is to press pause and say, what is going on? What else is happening? And in the case of intuitive eating, it's asking the question, what needs aren't being met? From Thrivalist, this is the Sober Not Sorry podcast with your host, Lucy Quick. As the leading destination to change your relationship with alcohol in an empowered way, Thrivalist will help you free yourself from the alcohol trap and create a life so wondrous you won't want to escape from it anymore. Welcome back to the podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in again. I hope you're loving it. And if you are, please leave a review, rate, subscribe, all of the things to help it get to a place where more and more people can find the podcast. So before we jump into the interview with Dr. Jen today, I want to share some really exciting news. We are running our first ever in-person retreat for the Sober Curious Woman, which will be held on November the 23rd to the 26th this year in Trentham, which is nestled in the Victorian spa country. I'll be hosting this retreat, which will be centered around rest, restoration, and connecting with oneself and other Sober Curious ladies. This will be a five-star experience. It's going to be so decadent. It's going to be exactly what you need and what you deserve right now. So included in the retreat will be all of the accommodation. So three beautiful nights in luxurious five-star accommodation. All meals will be included and we have an in-house chef who will be preparing all of the food, all of the snacks, all of the treats. Well, there'll be unlimited tea, coffee, mocktails. There'll be cheese platters and nibbles each evening before dinner. We're going to have on-site yoga and meditation classes. There'll be walks in the national park. We're going to have a 60-minute workshop with a naturopath and holistic gut health expert. And we're also going to have massages and Reiki, some pottery sessions and raw cooking demonstrations, a sound healing meditation And of course, so much downtime, time to relax, to finally read that book you've had on your shelf and enjoy some me time. So this is going to be a really intimate and exclusive experience. There's only going to be 10 guests and we're already at 50% sold. So if you're listening to this and thinking, oh my gosh, I need this in my life, I'm going to pop a link in the show notes. So please head over to that link and you can email me directly if you'd like info at thrivalistsobriety.com if you've got any other questions. Otherwise, would love you to join us for this beautiful experience. Okay, so now for today's episode, I was lucky enough to interview Dr. Jen Huber, a renowned naturopathic doctor, registered dietitian, and intuitive eating coach. And Dr. Jen works with women to help them redefine their relationship with food with intention. And this topic interests me so much, not only for my own personal reasons, which I'll get into in a moment, but also because I see so many thrivalist ladies and so many of my own clients in early sobriety at times replacing alcohol 
with food. So getting hit with a craving and using food, especially sugar, as a coping mechanism to support them through the craving. And I also see a lot of ladies sort of a little further on in their sobriety around the three month mark, especially really wanting to improve their relationship with food almost for the first time in their entire life, because this is what we know about sobriety. When you get sober, it's a beautiful opportunity to take a look at all of the areas of our life that we could be working on and we can be, I guess, up-leveling in. So for me personally, I, for a majority of my life, have had a slightly unhealthy and strange relationship with food. I've been a binge eater. I've used food for comfort as a coping mechanism. I've starved myself. I've done fasting. I've done all the fad diets, but thankfully I'm at a point now where I don't do any of this anymore. I don't fast. I don't do the shake diets or any other extreme diet. In fact, I just focus on eating more protein than I've ever eaten. I eat lots of veggies. I eat carbs every day, lots of good fats. And I also eat treats at least a few times, if not more, a week. For me, restriction does not and will not ever work, which is a really common trait for women who have or have had an alcohol use disorder, because if we start restricting, we want it more. So what I love about Dr. Jen's approach is she takes the pressure off us needing to eat perfectly. And she looks at how incorporating more of the foods we spend so much time and energy resisting is actually better for you in the long run. So she actually says, put the cookie on the plate and eat it with your lunch. Don't sort of save it till the afternoon and and have it and then feel guilty about it. So if you have a strained relationship with food or you're in early sobriety or both, you'll get so much out of this episode. I hope you enjoy it. Welcome, Jen. Thank you so much for being here with me this morning. So grateful. Thank you, Lucy. It's wonderful to be here. Jen, do you want to start by telling me about the work you do, the women you serve and why you do this work? Yes, thanks. I'd love to. So I am a Canadian trained naturopathic doctor and registered dietitian and an intuitive eating counselor. And I work almost exclusively with women in some stage of midlife to help them manage menopause without dieting and food rules. So that might seem really specific. And it actually kind of is because so many of the people that I've encountered through my work have really shown me that there's a a need to help women redefine their relationship with food in this stage of life, because we've kind of been exposed to what I call 30 years of default programming from diet and wellness culture. And we get to this age and stage of life where food matters. Like, you know, I I always say food matters, just not in the way that we've been led to believe. And so the conversations around food really start to change and become very health focused, very health centric. But when combined with all the mixed messages that people have gotten about food and health over the last 20 or 30 years, it, it can get kind of messy. So I really love helping women in this stage to undiet their relationship with food and kind of let it crumble, but build it back up with intention. I can so relate to what you're talking about. I obviously, I haven't hit menopause yet. However, I have spent the past two decades on so many different diets, trying to lose weight. I've tried fasting. I've tried the shake diets. I've tried, you know, (laughs) the, the no carbs, cutting out sugar, everything. And I've always kind of ended up back at the beginning and there's never been any long, long long-term results. And I just love what you're doing and it's so important. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. And this is the thing is that almost everyone has 
at some point tried following a diet for whatever reason, sometimes it isn't intentional weight loss. Sometimes it's wellness. Sometimes it's health. Sometimes it's to manage a symptom, whatever it is. Almost everyone has tried looking at a meal plan, a set of food rules, a list of do's and don'ts, and had pretty much a universal experience of feeling really excited about it at first because we're doing something. We're we're addressing whatever concern that we have and we have a plan. And our brain really likes that. Our brain likes to know what's going to happen and it likes feeling in control. So we start this plan and initially it feels really good and it may even work kind of air quotes in that it's doing what we expected or wanted to do. But after a period of time of following those rules and having to make ongoing decisions about food. Should I eat this? Should I eat that? Have I had enough? Have I had too much? Am I allowed? Am I not allowed? And then dealing with the feelings of deprivation that come from saying no to foods that we actually like the taste of and enjoy eating, it becomes unsustainable. And that is the diet cycle in a nutshell. Start a diet, works for a while, stops working, fall off the wagon, start all over again. And so when you've done that numerous times, you really start to see a pattern, which is the other part about midlife. I think that is really great is that it becomes much easier to see the things that aren't working anymore. And that includes dieting for a lot of people. Yeah. So obviously Thrivalist is a sobriety community for women and a huge number of our our community are in the the menopausal stages of life. And food is a big thing for for most of our members. And, And what can actually happen when we stop drinking alcohol is we start to replace it with other things that boost our dopamine. So things Mm -hmm. like sugar, things like more social media or more screen time. What is your sort of understanding around food and dopamine? Is this an area that you support your clients with? Oh, I love talking about this because food and eating psychology and mindset and, and that whole relationship is fascinating. So one of the things that I think is always important to acknowledge is that we need to eat. So unlike conversations with alcohol and other other types of recreational drugs, which we don't need, we need to have a relationship with food because we need to eat. And because our brain really likes to avoid pain and seek pleasure, we also have to have a relationship with food that allows us to eat food that we like. So it can't just be about eating for nutrition or eating for it's good for us or choosing foods that are non-nutritious less often. Like it can't always be about that. There can be intention there. And that's what I love about intuitive eating and gentle nutrition, but we have to have a place for eating foods that taste good. But when we're experiencing any kind of discomfort or pain for kind of just a lump it all in one category, our brain does seek things that make us feel good. And in moments of discomfort, whether that's temporary or longer term, we experience emotional hunger and emotional hunger is that strong desire to eat for reasons other than physical hunger. So it can be any strong feeling or emotion. And that's probably what I'm assuming is happening when people are making a choice to stop doing something that maybe they enjoy, but isn't doing what they wanted to do anymore. It's not helping them in the case of alcohol. And so that, I guess the permission to enjoy those foods in that early stages of recovery might actually be an important part of it. And what we know about sugar cravings in particular is actually kind of interesting because 
sugar cravings seem to happen as a result of restriction more often than not. So when we're looking at any type of craving, but especially craving for substances or things that we have restricted with food, I'm talking about trying to control access to them increases our desire for them and increases the amount that we need to feel satisfied. So this is kind of where understanding as well, the, the dopamine reward cycle is important because any food that we enjoy will produce a dopamine response, whether it's sugar or broccoli. It doesn't seem to be specific to the food. It may actually be more related to the behavior of anticipation and enjoy, and then having the food because the reward of anticipation with food is actually seems to be a little bit higher than the reward from eating the food itself. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. So I I guess the short of it is that I would expect it to be normal for people who are trying to stop doing something that they have enjoyed or have an addiction to. I, I think it would be normal to want to include foods that you enjoy and, and, and taste good and may have some of that palatability that in the moment is kind of replacing some of that dopamine, but unlike alcohol, sugar's ability to produce dopamine is going to be limited by what is biologically plausible or available with other foods that are enjoyed as well. So it doesn't have the ability to override that dopamine reward system in the way that drugs and alcohol would, Mm, which is why it's not food addiction isn't included in the criteria for addiction in the DSM. Um, there are certain key components that it lacks so that food addiction doesn't, isn't considered an addiction in the like true sense of the word. The main difference is that people don't experience physical withdrawal. So if somebody stops eating sugar, they may experience intense psychological cravings. They may go through that process, but they're not going through, through the physical withdrawal that we know is very characteristic of the brain going through withdrawal from an addictive substance like drugs or alcohol. The other thing is that we don't tend to see people losing their jobs, losing their houses, breaking up with their families because of food addiction. That's not to say, and it is not to minimize at all the intensity of the cravings that people may experience and the disruption to their their relationship with food and maybe even their health, but it's not on the same, I don't want to say the same scale because that seems like it's a value judgment, but it, it isn't the same process happening biologically. And so for that reason, it has not been included in the criteria in the DSM under kind of addictive or addiction disorders. I know from personal experience, Jen, when I was a teenager, I must've been going through a tough time. I think it was like year 10, year 11. And I have a memory of every morning going to the milk bar and buying a block a giant block of Cadbury um, Mm -hmm. and eating it on my way to school and always battling with this, with carrying extra weight. And it wasn't until sobriety. So I think I was around uh, probably three or four months into my sober journey. And I had an intense, what you've called emotional hunger. I love that. Mm -hmm. I've never heard that before. Um, I had an intense emotional trigger and I drove to the milk bar and I went inside and I got what I call the trifecta. And this is something that just begun <laughs> at this point in my sobriety. And the trifecta was a magnum ego. Like, I don't know if you, do you have magnum egos? Like We really, do. We do. Yeah. yeah. A bag of lollies, magnum ego, a bag of lollies and some form of chocolate. Like that's the trifecta. And sitting in my car and, and literally just eating it all. And that was a yeah. pattern that began 
a few months into my sobriety and continued probably once or twice a month up until maybe six months ago. And I haven't done it for for six months because Mm -hmm. I've really set a, I've set a bit of a goal to understand what's going on under that, under the layer, what's going on for me emotionally and, and sorting that out as opposed to just trying to escape that feeling. Absolutely. And so what you experience in that moment is what's called reactive eating. So in that moment of that pattern showing up where you're experiencing a really strong feeling, craving for specific foods, right? So it's like, you're very specific about what it is. That really is the definition of emotional hunger. And the response is reactive eating. And that response happens because our brain has a really well-worn pathway to manage uncomfortable feelings. Our brain is really good at learning. It's really good at remembering, which is the function of dopamine to remember what feels good in the short term. But also it doesn't want to expend a lot of energy thinking about new solutions. So the brain is highly motivated to repeat patterns that give us short-term reward. And so when we experience emotional hunger, and we have this well-worn pathway of something that is accessible to us and doesn't immediately have any consequences, it becomes an easy choice to make and a hard one to not make until you do exactly what you've done, which is to press pause and say, what is going on? What else is happening? And in the case of intuitive eating, it's asking the question, what needs aren't being met? And so when we're trying to understand these patterns of reactive eating in response to emotional hunger, The question of what needs aren't being met sometimes is obvious. Sometimes somebody can say, well, it's because I have no time to myself, or it's because I don't have any time for self-care or relaxation or fun, but sometimes it's not that obvious. And, And that's kind of really where I think a lot of the work with intuitive eating, and especially people who've had these patterns for decades, really helps them to not just stop doing it, but to really change how they're responding so that they have this kind of much, much bigger toolbox of awareness and self-compassionate responses. It's so true. You know, in the moment of just before I go to the milk bar and it's almost, I mean, I did a lot of work to get sober and a lot of the thrivalist ladies can understand how much goes into stopping drinking and because consequences of our drinking is so bad. It's actually, it can, for me, it was almost easier to make that clean break than the sugar. It took me much longer to kind of wean mm-hmm. myself off that, off that sugar because the consequences were not immediate. Yes. I didn't feel great, but I would get through that and I'd probably eat something savory and go to sleep. I'd be a bit tired, but it wasn't like a blackout or doing something that I regret. So it was a lot harder to, to curb that impulse it was a very impulsive mm-hmm. decision to, to get in the car, drive to the milk bar. But I just find it fascinating that link between the dopamine hit that I would get. Like driving to the milk bar was exciting. And mm-hmm. you know, that's the anticipation. The yeah. <laughs> the link between that and, and the same that I would feel before going to the bottle shop, I'd have that exact same feeling of, okay, we're going to do this. You know, press the yep. fuck it button. Let's go. Mm-hmm. So here's an interesting kind of example that is more relevant, obviously, to to intuitive eating because this obviously won't apply to alcohol. But in the case of someone who has this emotional hunger that's happening on a semi-regular basis and there's a real pattern of restriction, binging, restriction, binging, restriction, binging of like trying to go as long as you can without having it. And then you get into, like you say, like that fuck it moment and you're like, 
Ooh. And then your brain immediately is lit up and it's like, we're doing this. We're in it. Great. Let's go. Let's have it now. What I would suggest is often, well, let's pick something from that, that you actually really enjoy. So it's not just about having access. It's something that like you enjoy the taste of for whatever reason, it hits all the notes for you. And let's plan to have that moment more regularly. Let's plan to like, maybe on a weekly basis, have a moment where you intentionally choose to welcome that food into your eating, maybe with a meal, maybe as like another part of your day, but to not make restriction a part of the reward cycle. So that's why when you see so many people talking about how to overcome cravings and things like that, we all say, The restriction is the first thing we have to work on. It's not the food. It's the pattern of binging and craving that's created by trying not to have something. And then the switch that happens with anticipation, as soon as you decide that you are, that is the pattern that needs to be broken. I can totally see that. And it is different to alcohol because. Of course. (laughs) Of course. Which is that does not work with alcohol. No. And it can be confusing because these are the messages that we're getting fed from advertising, alcohol advertising agencies and and the media. It's like restriction, moderation with alcohol is, is the answer, but it's absolutely not. But alcohol is a drug. And this is why at the very beginning of the conversation, I said, it's so important to recognize alcohol is a drug. Everybody agrees with that. Food is not. Mm. Food is something that we need. And even that ice cream is providing you with carbohydrates, is providing you with some protein, is providing you with some fat. There are things that your body can and will use for energy from that food. So it's not empty calories. It's not useless. Unlike alcohol, which we absolutely do not need for nutrition, can't use it for nutrition. And it is truly a drug in every sense of the word. And it overrides and hijacks that response system. Food to the best of our knowledge and current kind of state of evidence can't do that. Mm. So really being clear about food is not a drug. It can be used in the same way that drugs are used to soothe, numb, make us feel, feel better in the moment, but it's not a drug in that sense. And even though you say we all know alcohol is a drug, unfortunately, we've grown up believing it's an important part of our life. Yeah. And it is a really damaging drug, but that's how we've, yeah, we've been raised to see it as we need that drink on a Friday. We deserve that drink on a Friday after work. We've had a big week. This is a reward. So Jen, do you find many of your clients in the menopausal phase of their life who come to you for support with their they're eating. Do you find that they also struggle with their drinking? So that's a really interesting question. And there definitely has been, I would say an observation on my part of midlife, making us confront the parts of everything that aren't working anymore. If you are ready to change your relationship with alcohol, then you're in the right place. The Thrivalist membership is a holistic approach to sobriety. It combines everything you need to free yourself from the alcohol trap and create the life of your dreams with coaching, community, and courses like the Signature Sobriety Course, which holds your hand and guides you through the process of building an incredible sober life. To save 20% off the Signature Sobriety Course, use the coupon SOBERNOTSORRY at checkout. Now, back to the episode. 
And so in the case of alcohol, what I absolutely have a lot of conversations about alcohol, but what makes it, I think, so obvious to everyone is that it starts to become obvious that it's contributing to many symptoms. So I often say that for most women, many women, alcohol self-selects its way out of our lives in perimenopause and menopause at least compared to the previous ages and stages of life, because it does interfere with sleep. It creates and causes anxiety. It worsens hot flashes. You know, it can cause and contribute to heart palpitation. So there's all these things that when you realize, oh, okay, it's causing all of these things. And it's maybe only giving me a half hour to an hour of relaxation. For many people, it becomes an easy thing to cut out. Obviously that's not the case for everyone. But yeah, so I absolutely do have conversations about alcohol because you're right. Some people don't realize that it's not, it's not doing us good. Like some people will say, well, you know, I have a glass of wine every night with my husband. Surely that can't be a bad thing. We have it with our meal. It's red wine, you know, but when I say, well, why don't you just try for a couple of weeks and see how you feel? And they've never considered that because no one's ever told them that one glass could be causing any downside because they only ever have heard about the upsides of having a glass of wine with dinner. Mm. So, you know, we talk a lot, I talk a lot about that, but just in the whole of evaluating your relationship with food, I think it's one of the things that does come up. And, and certainly people that I have worked with have started to realize that maybe their relationship with alcohol isn't healthy either and have, you know, sought out ways to, to change that often stopping, but at, at, a, at a minimum changing how and why they use it. You know, a spotlight is shone on all the areas of our life that's no longer serving yeah. us anymore. And that's making us feel less than average. One of the greatest gifts of midlife is that the ability to do things that don't serve you anymore becomes very, very uncomfortable. Saying no becomes easier. And just kind of saying, I don't want to do this anymore becomes much clearer. Yeah. So Jen, a huge part of early sobriety is also like this menopausal phase. It's an opportunity to take a spotlight on our life and clean up any areas that aren't supporting us or are potentially causing us to have cravings or any kind of root root causes yep. to, to make us drink. So there is quite a strong link here. And a big part of the, the Thrivalist course is a Thrivalist holistic framework where we really focus on holistic wellness as opposed to just stopping mm. drinking. It's a very holistic approach to setting our lives up to support us in an ongoing long-term way to stay sober long-term. That's the goal. And inside the Thrivalist holistic framework is taking a look at our nutrition and how we eat to support yep. ourselves. Can you provide more comments around what you, I guess, what you would recommend to someone in those earlier stages of sobriety in terms of what food is going to support them and how eating nutritiously can really support them in, in these early phases of sobriety. Yeah. I mean, and it, it is such a great point because we obviously need, as I would say, food matters, just not in the way that we've led, been led to believe. And so I'm assuming that, you know, when people are trying to maybe choose food more intentionally, they're doing it with kind of nutrition and health in mind. And so when that's the case, we really talk about adequacy. So first kind of filter is, is it enough to meet my needs? So instead of trying to be perfect, lowering the bar, is this good enough? Because we don't want to be at any stage, but I'm assuming, especially in sobriety, we don't want to be putting undue stress or expectations on creating these perfect meals. Because 
we expect too much of certain foods, especially vegetables. You're not going to make us poop unicorns just by eating them more often. Nutrition is the long game of health. And so how can we build balanced plates regularly with protein, carbohydrates, and fat? I would think that especially in those early days when maybe neurotransmitters are off and, you know, addiction is definitely outside of my wheelhouse of my everyday. So I have kind of some working knowledge, but I don't want to be speaking as if this is my expertise because it definitely is not. But with neurotransmitters in particular, serotonin and dopamine, carbohydrates play an important role in that. So restricting or avoiding carbohydrates may lead to unnecessarily lowering, you know, the potential for making serotonin. So making sure that you're including those foods regularly, but in balanced ways so that you're, you're adding in protein, fiber, and fat, and that's going to help to keep blood sugar more stable. And of course, that would be an important component for energy and mood. So thinking about the, the common triggers for substance abuse of, of any kind, you know, mood changes, sleep changes, energy changes. So really kind of having those regular deposits of nutrition throughout your day in a balanced way that fits into your life would probably be kind of at the top of my list, but also having space for foods that you enjoy. So, you know, not restricting or avoiding foods that may be higher in sugar, but including them with your meals. So, you know, put the cookie on your plate while you're having lunch, make it part of your lunch instead of the reward for having lunch, or instead of having it as a snack in the middle of the afternoon on its own, have it with dinner or, you know, in, in not at the end of dinner, but just kind of have it as part of your meal. So welcoming the opportunity to include foods that we enjoy, not as reward, but just as part of normal eating and what's available to us. I think might be helpful in those early days. Yeah, I love that plan. So just to recap, the first step is, is our food, is it good enough to support our needs? So rather than putting this pressure on to eat pristinely and perfectly, it's, is this good enough to support our needs in a nutritious way? Um, in this moment. Except, yeah. Like, is moment. it adequate? Yeah. Like an adequacy is very much based on capacity. And so, you know, if you are already at capacity, because you're trying to manage your cravings for alcohol, you're trying to change your routines and your behaviors around alcohol, your capacity to put a lot of thought and intention into creating perfect meals is going to be very different than three or six months down the road. So mm -hmm. is it adequate? Maybe that means having meals in the freezer. Maybe that means having frozen pizza or whatever it is so that you're having foods that meet your needs in that moment and that are adequate. So good enough. Sure. And then secondly, it's including those carbohydrates. So definitely not avoiding carbohydrates, knowing that they are no. really important to neurotransmitters. And yes. then thirdly, not restricting foods, but actually these, these kind of, you know, what we call bad foods, but actually welcome, welcoming them into our meals. And this idea of like having a cookie with dinner for me feels so rebellious or, you know, mm -hmm. the word that comes to mind is bad. And I, I'm really interested, interested to understand why do we include that food with the meal and not after or in the afternoon on its own? Well, and again, there's nothing wrong with either, but historically people tend to think of those foods as treats, desserts, rewards. And again, that sets up the anticipation of reward, which our brain actually really likes. So if we want to normalize all food and just make food neutral, we need to start treating it like any other food. So, uh -huh. and what tends to happen when we're having it with our meal is that by the time that we finished our meal, we may be feeling full, satisfied, 
And if we have met that taste hunger, so taste hunger is the desire to eat something just because it tastes good, which is a normal type of hunger. If we have met that taste hunger, if we've met our needs for satisfaction that way, we're less likely to be continually looking for it. So again, you know, we need to have food that tastes good. Otherwise our brain isn't going to like it, remember it, want it again. And it's going to remember the foods that do taste good. Sure. That makes sense. Wow. Yeah. I didn't know that. We do that with kids too. Like when, when, you know, people will often ask about, you know, well, how do I start applying some of this to my, my children or my family's relationship with food? And when I say, well, if you're having cookies, just put them out on the table and have them as part of the meal instead of making the kids finish the plate and having them as dessert. Mm. And it's a complete game changer. Wow. Really? Yeah, it really, it really so all complete game Yeah. Strange to me to allow my children to eat the cookies with their dinner. Yeah. And again, it's trying to normalize and reduce the reward associated with those foods. And Jen, you were spot on when you spoke about really, you know, when we're, when we're in early sobriety, the priority is not drinking alcohol. That's the yeah. top, you know, and something that we always recommend to, to the ladies that come to Thrivalist is just focus on that for now and know that you'll sort your food out. That will come next because yeah. when we try to change too much at once, it becomes overwhelming and it could be very triggering to drink alcohol. So Absolutely. I love, I love what you said then. And so I have another question about, about sugar. Mm-hmm. And there is a huge link between women in early sobriety mm-hmm. eating huge amounts of sugar. And it's, you know, some ladies will come to Thrivalist and have never really had a thing for sugar before ever. And suddenly they're eating a half a block of chocolate every night and they can't help it. And that's going up and up and up. And I, you know, I find it really interesting to see that trend. Do you know why sobriety, that women do eat more sugar in early sobriety? I'll make some assumptions because I don't actually know if there's like a single answer. You know, it's not something that I've looked into the research, but if we think about other reasons why we would crave alcohol and then sugar, I'm assuming that when people are craving alcohol, that the work that you're doing is helping them to uncover why, right? So there's, there's likely a count, a parallel counterpart to emotional hunger with food in that relationship with alcohol. So there's something, a feeling there's, you know, some kind of discomfort that is being temporarily soothed by, by drinking. So when you remove that tool to manage those feelings, we can't just ignore them. Like we, I tell people all the time, like emotional hunger can't just be turned off. We can't just ignore it. And our brain is really highly motivated to reduce discomfort and food is accessible and it tastes good. And our brain remembers that and knows that. So I would assume that that is likely the correlation there. And like with any other type of craving, we want to look at, well, what's the root of it? So what is the the root of the emotional hunger? What needs aren't being met? Are there other tools that you can add into your toolbox to help manage or address the, the root of that emotional hunger, but also depathologizing emotional eating because we all do it. Sometimes every single human on earth has had an emotional response with food managed with food. And when we can depathologize it and destigmatize it and remove some of the blame and shame that people feel when they reach for a bar of chocolate, I think then we kind of create an opportunity to say, okay, maybe this felt really good in this moment. 
And I don't need to feel ashamed about that, but maybe it isn't the only way or best way to manage that feeling. So, cause it gets into like a bit of a self-perpetuating cycle that we choose the chocolate because we have this really strong moment of emotional hunger. And then we create shame and guilt that creates new emotional hunger. So really trying to just press pause on all of that in a non-judgmental way and look at it a bit more closely is how I would manage sugar cravings in any situation. So probably wouldn't be different in this one. Interesting. Do you have like the go-to tool for overcoming a sugar craving? <laughs> I don't. Um, I mean, there are a lot of tools as part of the intuitive eating framework. So, you know, one is kind of recognizing. So, you know, often in the early stages of when I'm working with people, we're actually doing some observations of hunger, fullness, and satisfaction and getting people to connect. How often are you experiencing emotional hunger? So how often do you feel prompted or interested to eat for reasons other than physical hunger? Is that happening a lot? Is it happening a little? Is it happening at certain times of day in certain situations? And then we take another closer look and say, okay, look, it's happening in these situations with these people, or when you're feeling these feelings. And once we can have that level of awareness, then we can actually start doing something called practicing, not reacting, which is the observation and changing the response, but from a place of curiosity, not control. So recognizing that we may still actually come back and choose that food in that moment, but we're trying something else on. So there isn't a go-to because it's really dependent on an individual's emotional hunger prompts, what tools they have available to them, their capacity, what else is going on, but it's really anything that could potentially better meet the need that is being met in the moment by sugar. And I'm guessing like the the key drivers are like, tiredness would be a huge one. Yeah, exactly. So if you're tired, your brain knows that that chocolate is going to give it a quick hit of energy and, you know, it's craving energy. So when we're tired and not sleeping, you know, which certainly we know alcohol interferes with sleep, but so does menopause when we're tired and not sleeping, our brain actually needs 30% more energy to function. And so it, it is motivated to eat foods that are going to provide that quick energy. So maybe we need a nap. If we can't work on sleep immediately, like maybe we need a nap. Maybe we need to build in more rest. Maybe that is how we actually get to the root of the emotional hunger versus trying to focus on changing the response because changing meaning like stopping the the sugar or not having the sugar doesn't actually do anything to address the cause. Yeah. Okay. That's really interesting. I want to ask another question, Jen. I'm not sure whether you will be able to answer this, but what is your opinion on artificial sweeteners. So I've been substituting sugar for things that are artificially sweet for a while now. For instance, I'll have, we have like a a hot chocolate with some sweetener in it. I'll use that. It's got like, you know, 36, oh, sorry. I think it's got something like 36 calories. So for me, I'm like, that's okay. What is your opinion on, on swapping out the the sugar stuff for, for artificial sweeteners? I think it somewhat depends on the person, the situation, the circumstance. So for example, if someone has diabetes using a non-nutritive sweetener, so something that doesn't increase their blood sugar could be considered actually like a, a, a health promoting behavior, right? So like it, that's in, in that population, it's very clear for others. I think it really just depends individually. I don't think that there's anything particularly bad or alarming or concerning with using it regularly. 
there's some early data that tells us that it probably, some of them may have an effect on our gut microbiota. There's some associations in the research. There isn't a lot of causation that has been established that would be of concern. But again, it kind of comes down to, is it as satisfying? So if you find it as satisfying, you're not you know, sacrificing satisfaction for calories, then that's your choice to make. But sometimes people are making those choices because they feel like they should, or they have to, and they're trying to kind of make do with less as it were. And for some people that actually contributes to cravings. So that kind of constant feeling of not quite having what we want and not quite meeting that craving where it's at leads to more craving. So it's kind of the classic scenario of like, trying to choose the diet cookies versus the regular cookies. And you eat the whole sleeve of diet cookies and then end up eating the regular cookie anyway. Right. (laughs) So that's kind of where it would just come down to like, if you find it enjoyable and satisfying, I wouldn't see any issue with that at all. But if you felt like you had to, or that it was the better choice, then that would be something I would explore with someone. Let's, let's dig into that a little bit deeper. Okay, great. Thank you. And my last question, Jen, is what is your mission with the work that you're doing? If you could look back on your life when you're, you know, in your nineties and think, (laughs) yes, yes, I did it. I did what I really wanted to do. What would that be? I think I'm ultimately, I want to change people's perception about what food is and what food isn't. I don't want my kids or anyone to be afraid of food. I don't want people to always constantly feel like they're doing something wrong or that they have to put all of their time and energy into food. Food matters. It is absolutely an important component of our health. It is something that we have some control over, but it doesn't have to be perfect. And so really kind of shifting and undieting those beliefs around it needing to be a hundred percent to be effective. So many people are doing great at 50%, 70%, 90% of what they would like to do in an ideal world, but we don't live in an ideal world. We don't, most of us don't have people cooking for us and cleaning for us. And we're often at capacity. So just helping people to shed the guilt that I think has become the default with food. Like people are always apologizing for what they're eating or not eating. And I would love if I got to the end of my life, if I helped at least a few people not to feel guilty about food. Well, I think you've already done that, Jen. I think you've helped <laughs> a lot more than a few people. Thank you so much for this incredible interview. I have loved this. It's been so powerful and just so grateful for you being here. Thank you so much for having me. And that's it for the podcast this week. Thank you so much for tuning in. I hope you've enjoyed the episode and we'll be back next week. Lots of love. If you're not 100% sure about joining Thrivalist just yet, I'd like to direct you towards some free resources to get you started right away on your sober curious journey. You can head over to our website at www.thrivalistsobriety.com and read our member reviews. When you read about other women's success stories, it serves as a huge inspiration to get you started on your own. If we can do it, so can you. You can also head to the resources section of our website and listen to a guided future self meditation or calculate how much you'll save by taking a break from drinking. Plus, we've got loads of other free resources for you over there. Don't forget to follow us on Instagram, join our free Facebook community, and please reach out anytime you may need some support at info at thrivalistsobriety.com. <laughs>